0: Hello and welcome to a very special Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm your host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, which we expect is going to be around late July, early August, we will be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own, and I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this episode, Rohan. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me. Um, I'm not at all, like, used to being in this type of, I guess, commute, like, world. I'm very used to, and, like, so having, like, with Lowe's episode just that you just recently had, I'm really glad to have more, like, queer voices included, and even though this isn't necessarily a queer analysis episode that's always where i'm coming from so it's really great to have that included in kind of the discourse capital d
0: well thanks for saying so yeah absolutely I had a great time with low and absolutely you know i love the the dudes rock atmosphere with me and jeff is always a great time but it's it's important i think to to bring everybody to the party so we're going to be talking today about, I think, one of, both of, one of our favorite characters for both of us in the Song of Ice and Fire, uh, Melisandre of Ashai. But, uh, but before we get into the specifics, I just wanted to start by asking, how, how did you first get into A Song of Ice and Fire?
1: Uh, partly lesbianism.
0: Partly. <laughs> Good answer. Um,
1: so when I was about 15 my lazy English teacher, instead of having us read the masterpiece, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, which I ended up reading on, I just read on my own because it's amazing. So I read it and then for some reason she had us watch this horrible 1997 movie adaptation, which if you've read it, you know it's horrible <laughs> because it's all about interiority and you can't adapt interiority. Speaking of bad adaptations, however, Lena Headey is in it and she plays Sally who who is a queer socialist. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, so I was about 15 and really stuck with me I was like oh okay okay that's a long-winded way of saying that I've had a crush on her for oof I'm old about 15 years and so who can blame you I, I people I don't know so basically so Game of Thrones came on and I was like oh right that show has that hot person in it who was like definitely one of my baby gay awakenings so eventually once 2014 came I finally had time to watch it and I, yeah, I just was hooked, um, really, especially the the Lysa breastfeeding scene. When that came on, I was like, this shit is crazy, and <laughs> I'm in, because I was raised on soap operas, so I just, the wilder the better. At the time, I had a lot of, like, downtime to do nothing, so I'd go on Wiki of Ice and Fire and just, like read about everything and teach myself about the books because at the time i just didn't have time to read them but i wanted to know all about them so i like would have i would be like that person at family friends dinner parties who talk about the show i'd be like well in the books and but i hadn't even read them and um, which is it's now i hate now that i have read the books i don't i don't want to talk about it with locals <laughs> then season five happened and i was like what is this this is whack I'm reading the the books. I'm just reading it because I need to like actually get some canon in my brain. So I read the books and really loved them because it's really the psychodrama. I've never, for me, as I said earlier, I've never really been in communities like this. I am primarily above anything a huge cinephile, fancy word for film nerd, um, and into like weird Uh dark music. Same here. So I've never done anything related to fantasy. What really drew me in was the psychodrama. And all the interpersonal connections and interpersonal relationships and twistedness um, of everything and then melissandra in season two appearing was also like a big watershed moment for me one of my favorite movies is this movie called velvet goldmine which is, is a very thinly uh-huh. veiled david, david, thin, very thinly veiled about david bowie and there's a character named arthur who's like exploring his queer sexuality and when he sees the brian slade cough bowie on tv he go he has this moment where he points at the tv goes that's me that's me and I felt see I felt similarly I <laughs> saw Melisandre I felt represented um there's just and it's funny because like people are like what character in the media do you feel most like represented by I'm like the one who burns people alive but um <laughs> there's a lot of things about her that really reflected the way that I present my gender the way I present my sexuality and just like my selfhood and really I just loved her so much as a character and what was really hard is that within the show only watchers this is before I read the books everyone despises her like they hated her until she resurrected Jon Snow and then they forgot about her so it was like Oof, the Melisandre life is this, oh, it's a struggle. Like, it's funny because my other number one, my other favorite character is Cersei, and show readers actually like her a lot. Show watchers actually like her a lot more. And book readers can't stand her. I switched into, I was working in publishing, and I then switched and became a therapist. And as a therapist, there is just so much to unpack here. Everyone's always like, these characters need therapy. And I'm like, I got you. I've done a lot (laughs) of... Kind of ad hoc, spontaneous, like I'll be on the train and feel like tweeting something, psychoanalysis of different characters, especially Cersei. Amy Blackfire is another content creator. I did a Cersei centric episode with her about her psychology. And I really feel like the series has actually enriched my therapeutic practice and vice versa, that my therapeutic practice has enriched my understanding of the series. Like, for especially with Cersei, I had a patient who we had our final session last week that went really well actually talking about all she learned and there's a lot of Cersei things about her to the point where I actually quoted Cersei once with her. I um it was she was saying how she likes when it rains. I was like, it's like you need a storm. she has ang- she her primary diagnosis is called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which is about anger outbursts, said it's like you need a storm to match your rage. She's like, Yeah. Being able to learn more about trauma specifically has helped me understand the series and the characters better because this is trauma the series. And the issue is that a lot of people don't really know how to talk about trauma. I don't know a lot about it.
0: I totally agree that what what hooked me into A Song of Ice and Fire was this this sense of of twisted icebergs looking beneath the surface with the characters and complexities that weren't going to even be wholly resolved on the page, which which drew me into a lot of these characters, especially since, as you're saying, a lot of them are. Their lives are consumed with stuff that happened fifteen years ago that they 're still processing and still kind of walking through so many of the roberts rebellion generation were were appealing in that vein and and so much of i think it 's interesting that a, a song of ice and fire has has kind of become part of your, part of your therapeutic practice that way because so much of so much of storytelling ends up feeling like a processing of some kind and a working through of stuff that you have subconsciously. Like you brought up, uh, you brought up Velvet Goldmine. And for the unfamiliar, yeah, Velvet Goldmine is basically Citizen Kane, but gay, yes. like it's, it's, it's this thinly movie. veiled. It. It's, it's terrific. It's directed by Todd Haynes, who made a Far From Heaven and Safe. A lot of movies with Julianne Moore, just a great, great movie. And so it's got the, the Citizen Kane kind of structure of a journalist uh, and a, a former uh, young young fanboy himself looking back at the career of this, this musician and trying to discover what was about him. And there's there's this kind of catharsis that he finds going through this other person's life even though it's inherently incomplete because it's another person's life and it's it's uh, it always struck me as uh as very similar to how fans of, of any kind of story and artist kind of work through their own lives uh, with these characters and it always always reflects back on us and i've certainly felt that with a lot of characters as well.
1: I've become not only a better therapist, but a better person through, like, psychoanalyzing Cersei to death, because I definitely share a lot of things in common with her, That and being aware of those things and being able to, like, work with those things has been really helpful for me, and that's the point of therapy, is to gain self- so People think the point of therapy is to get better, quote-unquote, but it's really to gain self-awareness. To fix, yes, to fix yourself, right. And the the goal really is just to gain self-awareness, and through that, you can heal. But I really like your point about stories because actually, so my background is in like literary analysis and literary theory, really like deep nerd theory stuff. And that really has shaped my therapeutic practice because what you're doing in literary theory and literary analysis, as with A Song of Ice and Fire, is identifying themes and patterns, motifs, seeing how they recur, seeing how they impact the overall narrative. And that's what you're doing as a therapist. Like I had one of my kids say to me a few recently, she's like, you're good at recognize like bringing up things that I brought up in previous sessions and connecting them. I'm like that's my job. You know, like it's and that's what you so what you do as a, in analyzing literature and analyzing characters is so similar to what you do as a therapist. So I feel like that's where it's come together for me.
0: And that's so valuable because it's, it can be so hard to recognize a pattern when you're in the middle of mm-hmm. it, when you're the one carrying it out. It can just seem you just don't recognize it because it's the soup you swim in. And that's, that's true of fictional characters as well. You, you as the reader can see things that they would never never think to spot because it's just their life the
1: therapist is the reader
0: yes and the, and the same is true for a character like melisandre of course because she's you know reading the flames in a way so she's constantly engaged in this process of interpretation mm-hmm. adaptation and translation
1: absolutely and she also has that fa- that great quote one of my favorites in the series where she says the fault lies in the reader not the book um so it's fun
0: <laughs> wink wink nudge, yeah, nudge. Wink, wink, yep, nudge exactly nudge. but it, yeah george talking like, to us but
1: also like yeah it's when you apply that to therapy it's interesting because you have to balance that position of being the objective reader with also for me my background my degrees in social work and i have a social justice informed practice it's always crucial to me to approach the client as the expert on their own life to not say like i am superior to you i know more than you especially as this white woman i know more than you no like i don't know your experiences especially if you're having this experience of oppression that is that i have not lived and so really giving the space. So maybe the fault is with the reader and not with the book a lot of the times. But I think what it is is really you're co-reading together. Like it's a collaboration in terms of the text.
0: I've always loved thinking about reading that way, that it's a it's a something you're doing with the author, even though of course the author is done with the book and has already published it, but it's still like this this is a conversation you're having, and that's that seems like a great way to approach it. And yeah, so we're going to be talking specifically about the character of Melisandre, who George has said is the most misunderstood character in the series. Melisandre and Varus, he said specifically, are the most of the most misunderstood dreams. characters in the series. Absolutely, me too. And I think what they have in common is I think people correctly recoil from the horrible things they do. But Melisandre especially, I think, often gets treated as just an archetype or is just like this, like a prop in Stannis' story with like evil written on her in red crayon. And it's just like that's... You know, I, I understand why a surface read, especially coming off the show, would lead one to that conclusion. But Melisandre, as she's written, is is a a, a character in herself. So that, that, for me, is the category error. It's not like everyone has to, you know, love her or something. But it's like, as, as a character, there's there's so much more kind of sorrow. And, and just, she's very specific. And I feel like Melisandre is often talked about, like, she's just, like, the witch. And, I'm, like, this, she's she's a very specific and interesting character. So that's, that's one of the reasons I, uh, I wanted to talk to you about her.
1: What you said right there is exactly why I stan her. And also the characters I like the most are the ones who, I actually think what, I can't say Aeswath because it sounds like asswipe to me. But i also like asswipe, whatever, ass- <laughs> I just call, I call Game of Thrones tits and dragons, I call Ace asswife. asswipe. Anyways, what the series, the series, what the series does so well to me is subverting fairy tale tropes. So as I said, I was not really, did not really grow up on fantasy, huge into fairy tales. My favorite characters are the one who are thro- subverting fairy tale tropes. So with Cersei, you have the evil queen, and you're seeing all the like par- like the rage underneath that we would never ascribe to this evil queen. With Melisandre, she's the archetype of the sort like witchy sorceress, like evil. Uh, they used I'm gonna to, burn your kids. You know, yeah, they used to on this one podcast. They used to call her Evil Stevie Nicks. <laughs> My favorite characters in general, in any media, not just A Song of Ice and Fire, are ones whose insides don't match their outsides. People who seem to have their shit together, but mentally, are hot mess expresses. And Melisandre is a paragon of this, because when you go inside her head, oof, mess, mess! Same with Cersei, of course. Um, same with Jaime. Also, Melisandre, you were saying she's like seen as this ty- one type thing in terms of the like sorceress. She's actually a case study in PTSD. She meets all the criteria, she meets the criteria smashingly. And I would lo- and the, kind of the goal is to use talking at Melisandre to learn more about PTSD and use talking at PTSD to learn more about Melisandre because it's an angle that we don't see with her. We see a lot of like speculation of who is she really? Is she sheer sea star? What's her like purpose? What's her mystery? But we don't actually get a lot of analysis of how she thinks and why she thinks that way. And it's you can't do so without talking about PTSD and trauma, because that is not just how she thinks, but everything about how she behaves and acts. And the, the construction of Melisandre from Melanie is in itself a PTSD avoidance trauma reaction. As I said, this is Trauma, the series, where everyone throws around the label of PTSD so over generously, it's like you, like Oprah, you've got PTSD, you've got PTSD, but there is a set of criteria there's in the DSM-5, which is the Bible for mental illness. It had list every mental illness. There's actually, there's a whole chapter on trauma and stressor related illnesses. PTSD is one of them out there. I don't know the percent, but out of people who experience trauma a very small percent actually develop full-blown PTSD. So there's, a, amongst the Song of Ice and Fire characters, we see a lot who experience symptoms related to trauma, and I, I would diagnose most of them with what's called unspecified trauma or stressor reaction disorder, where it just kind of means like you're shaped by trauma versus it's interfering with your life and your identity in this formative way, like it does with Melisandre or with, I would say, also like Sandra Clegane.
0: Sure, okay. That's a fair distinction. I get you. Like you say, people throw around the, the, the term trauma a lot. How, how would you define these terms for people who like think they're vague or might really not know what they mean?
1: So I want to clarify first with the caveat that I myself have not experienced PTSD. I do treat like, pretty much most of my patients have it, but I don't I haven't experienced it. What usually happens in relation to a traumatic event is people will either have no trauma response or they'll have what's called acute stress disorder or adjustment disorder. So acute stress disorder is in relation to trauma, lasts like symptoms that last three days to one month. Adjustment disorder, symptoms last three to six months. PTSD is when symptoms last over six months. So for PTSD in the criteria, criteria A, you're exposed to one or more events that involve death or threatened death, actual or serious injury, or threatened sexual violation. In addition, these events were experienced in one or more of the following ways, directly experiencing the event or witnessing the event as it occurred to someone else. Trauma does reshape our worldview and behaviors, such as I think a classic example and who the word PTSD is used the most about, inaccurately I would say is Ned, because the way in which he feels extra protective of Arya because she reminds him of Liana, he does have dreams that are like relate to these, And so I think that Ned is a really great example of a character whose worldview and behaviors are shaped by the trauma he's experienced with his sister's death in the war, but doesn't actually meet PTSD criteria, which which I'll talk about more with Melisandre, because basically the way I have structured is kind of to go through like criteria and talk about how she meets these criteria and what that says about her psychology.
0: When someone's undergoing trauma and and it happens once, it happens repeatedly, kind of how would how would you describe what is happening to you like what instincts are, are being activated what is what's what's your brain doing and then what is what is a therapist it what, what are your, kind of your principles when you when you start dealing with that
1: great question so there's what we call single incident trauma we go into flight fight or freeze um those kind of speak for themselves but maybe let's use like sander Klein as an example sander sees fire he's either gonna run away he's gonna be like fuck this and like fight people, or just freeze and not know what to do. And then there's Melisandre, I would say, has experienced, again, it's hard to talk about because we don't know the extent of her background, right? But we know that she was a child slave, so it's pretty safe to say that she's experienced repeated trauma. Um, With repeated trauma, the body doesn't, isn't even able to do the flight fighter freeze, so you develop all these sets of psychological protections. And those protections are often about shutting down and becoming more numb so that you're not taking in the outside world. Because that's the only way you can function. If you're taking in the outside world when you're experiencing repeated trauma, you have to shut it off. Like the, the classic example of like if someone is sex, experiencing sexual assault and they say, like, I left my body but they, it's not always as dramatic as dissociation like melisandre will talk about her way to her set of protections is to create a whole new person basically um and really with her actually this is more of a cersei thing is the fire like she create Melisandra actually too ironically creates an icy facade but there's this fire underneath threatening to melt it and something i just remembered too that you brought up earlier that was like Mondo Labradon about how people don't view Melisandre and it's like they don't think about her thoughts I think part of it is actually related to her PTSD because her chapter is trippy the way that she expresses her thoughts are very disorienting and disjointed in a way that is reflective of PTSD in related thinking and so I think that because her thoughts are more as I said trippy and George's writing his trippiest writing is his best I think but when he because Agreed. her brain functions more in like a disassociative, random free association way, and like almost hallucinatory way, it's harder to think about her thoughts versus someone who's thinking in a more concrete way that we can read.
0: I'll never forget turning the page in a dance with dragons and seeing Melisandre's name like pop up in that chapter heading because i just didn't expect it at all like i there were like like Brienne. i kind of figured like once jamie sent her off on her own i was like all right she's getting her own thing she's going to have her own her own story Melisandre was just so unexpected and then yeah you you're, you're taken inside her thoughts and it's this very kind of just unstuck woozy psychedelic pattern and it, and so much of that is is you know george how he likes to write magic and how he likes to write mystery but it is he's also showing you that this is this is Melisandre's thought patterns and he's giving you kind of, kind of hints as to why she is that way, you know, no matter what approach you take to it, I think that that demands that the reader start thinking more deeply about Melisandre and thinking how you might, you might try to approach her, whether just as a reader or, or uh, as a therapist.
1: Yeah. So just like as a therapist, it just ticks, like this chapter ticks off all of my like diagnostic alarms and Then it really sheds light on her behavior throughout the series in terms of like Davos calling her mother of death, which is badass. But also like the ways in which she has distant people don't even view her as human because of the ways in which she has had to distance herself from any like facet of vulnerability because of how hurt she's been.
0: Right, she's that again like that archetype thing. Davos, like many readers, is just looking at her as a as a sorceress, as a witch, and the idea that she would have events in her past to process would probably seem bizarre to Davos. Like what she has a past, she doesn't just like cackle over a black cat every night.
1: She's, and the things that they're seizing on, her sorcery and her religious fanaticism are what she's using to process it. And I'll talk about this more later, but her, her primary maladaptive coping technique, and not just for her, but for, for many people, is religious fanaticism. Religious fanaticism is a way to make meaning out of meaninglessness. And that's what you have to do after you've experienced trauma so that your suffering hasn't been in vain. So a lot of people who experience trauma often turn to religious fanaticism. I mean, the the whole structure of AA is very religious and it's meant to kind of provide you with, okay, so you don't have addiction anymore. Now we right. are replacing this with another system. So it's a lot of Higher people power. who experience yep. trauma. And it's, I should clarify too, I am a trauma therapist. Like I work primarily with teens who've experienced complex trauma all people who experience trauma tend to then think very concretely. So someone like Melisandre or someone who's just coming out of a very traumatic addiction period need this like concrete thing to grab onto. So in the words of um, the musician Wiseblood's song, Something to Believe, which is the number one Melisandre anthem next to the dancer, (laughs) besides the dancer by PJ Harvey, the other Melisandre anthem, is she says, give me something I can see, something bigger and louder than the voices in me, something to believe. You need something to quiet the voices in you that are like screaming out, and something to give you an organized structure to grab onto so that the harm that's been done to you wasn't in vain. Because if there is no God, and this suffering was in vain, why live? What How, how can you have hope?
0: Absolutely. You see that uh, with uh, Aaron Dampere as well, that he was uh, abused by his brother, and no one ever did anything about it, and he's, he turned to religion as a way of dealing with his, his anger and fear and pain, and then Euron comes back to to re-traumatize him in a lot of ways, to force him through the same kind of degradation he suffered when they were young and kind of blame him for their other brother's death. And, and to say like, they're, they're never, you know, you've been praying to yourself this whole time. You've been talking in your brain to you. And the only closest thing you have to a God in universe is, is actually Euron. And, um, with Melisandre, of course, it's, uh, her, her relationship to her God is is a little different. As you say, you work, you work with trauma. So what is it, what what does it mean to come at therapy with 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 trauma in mind? Like, what is what are your goals?
1: I mean, so the goal. It's. I also should clarify, I'm a fairly new therapist. Um. So I'm especially with trauma. I really feel like I'm still learning a lot, and I just like I work on. Gotcha. We're gotcha. like a team based. I work. I'm not an individual private practitioner. I work at an outpatient program, and we're very team based. So I'm really learning a lot from my. Far more experienced um, coworkers. I'm the newest one there and the youngest and all of that. So, um, but really, I come from a trauma-informed care perspective. So, trauma-informed care and this is and trauma-informed analysis of a character, anything, is about prioritizing safety, choice, re- building trustworthiness, and really about a collaboration between the practitioner and the client, focusing on resilience and empowerment. So, this ensures that treatment and support are holistic they engage with every aspect of their client not just zeroing in on the event that caused trauma so these types of healing spaces and relationships can feel different from traditional like psychotherapy experiences that have a history of re-traumatizing patients through non-consensual treatment lack of and l- lack of cultural competency so a key with trauma informed care is really the cultural i don't like competency because you can never fully be competent in another culture but cultural sen- cultural sensitivity i guess i'd say So let's say I Melisandre was my patient, I would want to know more about the culture that she grew up in, and like the conditions of like the the ways in which like children were sold into slavery because there are certain things about it that might be normal for her. I think that we assume there's way too much assumptions projected. Like a really good example in relation to a PTSD patient of mine is that um their girlfriend they told me that their girlfriend has all their social media passwords and tracks them on it. And my, my gut was like, what? And that, but what I said in my therapist's brain was, and how do you feel about her having that information? And they said, it makes me feel cared for. So like really like understanding that because of what their background is, that they have a different idea of what care looks like because of their trauma. And so that is to me what trauma-informed care is. I think when I'm working with PTSD, the main thing is to use a therapeutic relationship to create, to heal trauma because it is healable. PTSD is not a life sentence. Even C PTSD, complex PTSD, is not a life sentence. I have worked with clients who. You know, the trauma will always be with them, but they're not having PTSD symptoms in the way that they used to. And I think it's been relational because I'm, I guess I'm just a little more old school in my approach that way, that I'm always about, like, the therapeutic relationship. But the thing is that repeated trauma is usually relational in its source. So, the, like, it's usually coming from our relationships with people, from a lot of people, early childhood and family relationships, for Melisandre, perhaps relationships with people at the Temple of Lord of Light. Um, so, heating, so healing, therefore, should happen relationally through relationships. Um, and later we talk about where Melisandre currently doesn't really have those options. But in therapy, what you're really doing is providing providing the holding environment, which is a safe space for somebody to really explore. It's, it's something, it goes back to a baby crawling and like having a, space, a safe space to crawl. But you have to metaphorically get that and know that you're still going to be there to catch them.
0: So uh, talking specifically about Melisandre, we've talked a little bit about her character. We've talked about, about trauma and PTSD more generally. So uh, you think about Melisandre and PTSD. What are, what are some criteria for, for PTSD that, how does, and how does Melisandre relate to those?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So per DSM-5 criteria... Criterion A, I mentioned she already meets. I mean, we don't know the specifics, but we know that she most definitely was exposed to one or more events that involved death or threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or set threatened sexual violation, and probably directly, probably both directly and witnessed. The next important criteria is criterion B, which means which you have to have intrusive symptoms. So the main ones are unexpected or expected, reoccurring, intrusive, upsetting memories. The, one, the main one for Alessandra is repeated upsetting dreams where the content of the dreams is related to the traumatic event. So as we know from a POV chapter, there's the passage. She had no time for sleep with the weight of the world upon her shoulders, and she feared to dream. Sleep is a little death, dreams the whispering of the other, who would drag us all into his eternal night. She would sooner sit bathed in the ruddy glow of her Red Lord's blessed flames, her cheeks flushed by the wash of heat as if by a lover's kisses. Some nights she drowsed, but never more than an hour. One day Melisandre prayed she would not sleep at all. One day she would be free of dreams. Melanie, she thought, lost seven. Now, like, let's pause. shes We know she's a few hundred years old. She still will not sleep because she is still having such bad nightmares if she sleeps after a few hundred years that must have been some pretty bad trauma
0: yeah that is it's so suggestive of a, a, a kind of a childish not childish in the sense that it's immature but like rooted in the past fear of uh, of of nightmares and it, it, it yeah it makes me think of um uh there's one character in Stephen King's it who all those characters went through, you know, horrible stuff when they were children, and then we see them as adults. And one of them is a very rich architect, and he he like spends his life like flying, flying west so he can stay as ahead of the sun or ahead of ahead of nightfall as much as he possibly can, because it's just when when night falls, just just all the, all the horrors come out. And it's that's so it's such an interesting thing from Alessandra that you have this motif of night and fire, which previously in her character has all been. Uh, Like magical and religious and like, you know, very literal, like that's that's God and that's the devil. And, you know, I'm here to have this fight. And now suddenly it's oh, this is a reflection of her own internal struggles that that the fire is not just keeping the world safe, it's keeping her safe. And that's that's a very different relationship.
1: And the dark, yeah, and I'll talk about this more when it comes to other symptoms, but I think that her, like, obsession and fixation on, like, getting, pushing away darkness is very much about pushing away the specific things that happened to her. But I'm actually glad that you used the word childish, because not to say that people who experience PTSD are childish, but you do actually, it, when you experience trauma, a lot of people get kind of trapped in a way at the age at which they've experienced it. Like, that's just, there's been a lot of, like, neurological studies that show that and so she like is like sandor in way, clegane
0: with the mm-hmm. when sandor cries after yep. he gets burned with beric okay yeah that's interesting It's like well okay. basically
1: what happens is you just develop such concrete thinking in the way that children think like like in melisandre like dark bad this good there is no gray so the concrete thinking that she displays is classic trauma response classic and so it's in a way she has to like be like, nope, I am 100% avoiding sleep in the same way as a little kid who, like, has a nightmare and, like, refuses to go to sleep afterwards. Like, when... Sure, right. so that's there's what I something... thinking, So yeah. she really is in, like, this, despite being a few hundred years old, is also, like, still four in terms of the way that she has been trained to see the world as a ge- as out to get her. Um, like, she really does see, like, that's a thing, beyond, underneath, like, and I think this is why Relorian philosophy speaks so much to her, because it's all about the idea that, like, you're fucked. We're fucked. The world is out (laughs) to get you. And and it is also then based on upon what you can do to change that. And that's where she's like, what she's working on. It's that concrete thinking in relation to not just sleep, but like her entire worldview is reflective of trauma patients who basically are kind of trapped in this state of like the world is a dangerous place that I was taught it was dangerous in childhood. And how, what can I do to, I have to do concrete things to like push that, to be able to survive within it.
0: So when she's not a POV, you see her staying stuff, saying stuff like, we got to keep night fires in front of the wall. And so like, okay, it's this big picture thing. And then but then it, when she's a POV, suddenly starts applying to herself. Like, oh, it's even in my tent, even in my rooms, you, you can never, ever, ever let the fire go out. And like, that's, I think, strike me more as a response to something that has happened that she's trying to... Sp- specifically guard against which is interesting because what she's saying is the others are coming like this is something in the future that i'm getting ready for but maybe she's actually well that's
1: her um the, the psychology term is apparent confidence that's the and the apparent the glamour is actually the metaphor for apparent confidence where she's like look i have this mission i am so good at this i can like command all these like men are scared to say my name it's like she's using this trauma of trauma response and sub that's what it's sublimating she's sublimating it into this idea of like a grander purpose and that's how she like comes off the way she does but i do believe i really i, mean, I don't think we'll ever learn what specific things about her childhood but i do think that something bad happened to her in the dark so then find like relorian religion is like cool That also fears the dark. Like, I think the stuff about the dark is like there's because we meet other Valorians in the story, but they don't have this like overwhelming obsession with having some form of light on at all time.
0: That's true. She does seem like a lone wolf in a lot of ways with a very specific relationship to it.
1: And also another um, symptom she meets is that I didn't get to discuss yet, is another criteria in terms of you have to have at least two intrusive, um, at least, sorry, at least one intrusive symptom. So she has the upsetting dreams. Another intrusive symptom that she has is a form of disassociation where you feel as though the traumatic event is happening again. Where we see that with her, and I don't think this is often analyzed in this way, but I see it this way, is the part that says, shivers of heat trace patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hands. Strange voices called to her from long days, days long past. Melanie, she heard a woman cry. A man's voice called Lot 7. Like, this is when she's just looking at the flames, like, chilling in her chambers, and she's having, she's back in that world, which is what makes the writing, as we said before, so trippy and hallucinogenic. Um, but it's trippy and hallucinogenic because she's... I read her here as disassociating and having an intrusive, like, flashback, which to me qualifies her as a PTSD um, patient. And there's also another criteria that, in relation to intrusiveness, is strong and persistent distress upon exposure to cues that are either inside or outside of your body, that is connected to the traumatic event, which is what we just talked about with the dark. How her fear, her, like, obsession with, like, avoiding darkness, like, she has so much, as they say in the DSM, strong and persistent distress upon exposure, upon the idea of being dark. Like, when she, when she says the night is dark and full of terrors, and Crescent responds, only children fear the dark, and I'm like, well, if you learn to fear it during a childhood trauma, then that explains a lot. One thing I did want to point out, too, that really struck me is that she's actually, and this is also very classic uh, PTSD, it's actually like a Stockholm Syndrome thing, is that her trauma relates to being sold as a child slave to the Temple of the Lord of Light, and she's an obsessive Valorian. So it's like she has to make, she has to use the thing that traumatized her as her, like, whole system of meaning in order for it to have not just been suffering for nothing. In the same way that we will, like, that people will often kind of... Capitalize on the like. Sometimes people like will really like who had like a traumatic religious upbringing will then become really hardcore about it um because it needs to have meant something.
0: Like you were saying, meaning meaning instead of meaninglessness, and that feels like that's that's the huge a huge theme for Melisandre is trying to that there's got to be a pattern, and that and that even suffering is okay or even good as long as there's a reason and so there has to be a reason so that's yeah that's her that's her move
1: the serenity prayer is like about that suffering it's okay and i think it's actually within dialectal behavior therapy which we use a lot in my work it's about radical acceptance and that it's the accepting of suffering but like for her it's like i'm accepting it because it fits into this this whole like high hardcore like metal ideology the third criteria you have, so as we said, you have to experience a traumatic event. You have to have intrusive, some form of intrusive symptom. The next criteria is you have to have avoidance symptoms. And this is her, this is her whole being. So frequent avoidance of reminders associated with the traumatic event as demonstrated by one of the following, avoidance of thoughts, feelings, or physical sensations that bring up memories of the traumatic event, avoidance of people, places, conversations, etc., that bring up memories of the traumatic event. This is her. Because she, her key symptom is this, is that she is completely avoiding her past self and created a persona, this whole glamour, a whole physical other self, to distance herself from Melanie L- seven Again, I think this is why people don't talk about it in relation to trauma, because it's so bound up in magic. It's like with the sleep. Oh, she doesn't sleep because she doesn't have to sleep because because it's magic. But also, she, she's also, even if she, she's also purposefully avoiding it. They make, George makes a point to point that out. And same with this, like, the apparent confidence is that she looks, as we said, like, evil Stevie Nicks, and, which is, like, very glamorous, and the swirling satins and, like, it's really, all of that is a cover-up for this, for Melanie, who is this scared child afraid to dream, who won't even turn off the light after 400 years. So Melisandra, the Melanie to Melisandre thing is the like ultimate avoidance of thoughts, feelings, everything related to trauma. Your original trauma by completely pretending you're a different person and like creating the most apparent, the ultimate apparent competent self of being this person who's so charismatic as a religious leader that people who would never even listen to a woman follow them. And so that to me is the key thing to me that speaks to her PTSD more so than like the flashbacks and everything, and it goes to show like so many people have accomplished a lot through building some sort of like elaborate way to avoid their trauma.
0: And how interesting then that her first nemesis is Cressen, who is feeling the age in his bones and how, you know, he can barely, he's not as quick and uh, fast as he used to be. And Melisandre is like, she looks youthful, but really she's even older than him. So she's like, she has like, she has, as you say, sublimated all those thoughts and all those fears that Crescent feels just kind of washing over him uh, all at once at the end there. There. All right. So what do we, what do we got next? What's moving on down the list? What's, what's our next criterion?
1: Yeah. So then the next criteria to meet for PTSD is at least two of the following negative changes in thoughts and moods that occurred or worsened following the experience of the traumatic event. So inability to remember an important aspect of the traumatic event. We don't really get that with her. Main one with her is persistent and elevated negative evaluations about yourself, others, or the world. For example, I am unlovable, or the world's an evil place. Now we touched on that. How the whole idea of like the others are out to get us. I mean, she's not wrong. <laughs> sure, sure, she's actually right. That's a thing. So that's a thing. That's also people don't read it as trauma reaction because right because
0: there are literal zombies. So it doesn't necessarily scan that way. She takes the existence of the others and then uses it to prop up this pattern that she is interested in for her own personal reasons. So it, it, it it's it becomes less. I believe in this because of the others and more I believe in this and the others demonstrates that I'm right. Like that, that seems to be what she's doing.
1: Exactly. It's like when I work with kids who like terrible things keep happening to them and they're like, and this is why I think the world is evil. And they have a point because some of the things that happens to them are terrible. Like, so however, they're using that as a way to like create a larger pattern out of the initial trauma and suffering.
0: And that, uh, that, that kind of leads her to her mindset that we see explored with first with Davos when they're having their big ethical conversations and then later on her own that she has this it's not just about the others that she has this way of thinking about the entire world that is kind of broken down into these categories
1: because again like let's contrast with like Baris and Baric. Bar that's her ship name I guess. Um Baric and Thoros. you know like they're not as doom-laden and they share the same religious system. Although they're also more motivated by like, that helps. The stuff, but and like or even like more like, the, the the other the other red priest whose name's like won't be held
0: Oh yeah, the Volantis guys. Dance. Yeah, that's true.
1: They're not yeah, they're not as they they are very extreme in many ways, but they're not as like cognitively concrete and so then the other criteria in relation to like criterion D of negative thoughts or mood is feeling detached from others, which I think we see in terms of like, she can't connect with anybody because she's this persona she's created, the way she's introduced, one of my favorite character intros. shows. Crescent refuses to say her name. The Red Woman, the servants had named her, afraid to speak her name. Melisandre of the Shy, sorceress, shadow binder, and priestess to R'lore, the lord of light, the heart of fire, the god of flame and shadow. Melisandre, whose madness must not be allowed to spread beyond Dragonstone. Like she's just always so othered? She's not really able to form genuine and authentic connections with other people because of this facade that she's built around herself, this impenetrable facade. It's funny she's at the wall now, because talk about having walls built up, and she feels even stronger at the wall. But like because of this wall, like she's permanently detached from others. I like to write fic in which people characters who are who are hurt are able to heal. And for me, like the relationships, and so for me, I would love her to like be able to find somebody who can actually like see through the wall and not and be determined enough, and have their themselves be um, kind of in a similar place where they're like they also have. To, I'm talking at Cersei, yes. But anyways, it's like you're gonna save humanity, but no one right. No like,
0: one say will. You. you know, no one will remember, and you'd have to even in her best case scenario. What would Melisandre? Do next. And maybe she doesn't know. Maybe she's not even thinking about it that far ahead because it's just about keeping the dark at bay as long as you possibly can.
1: I did love her ending. I just, I love it because A, in the context of her being afraid to sleep, she's choosing to, she's allowing herself to sleep for the first time. Like that to me was the healing. But I think this relates to the trauma is that like what you were saying, she can't even see past this war between humans and others. And so it would be like, okay, like that mean, guess I'll die. Like... And she is she sees herself as an instrument of her lore, which is sad because like nobody should see themselves as an instrument for someone else's agenda, which makes me think of I wonder how much she was like she as a slave was exploited. And so like with the history of exploitation, it makes sense that you would see yourself as a tool for another when you've been treated as a tool for another.
0: Interesting that she talks about being a servant of the Lord of Light and the source of all warmth and life and pleasure. But like Melisandre doesn't seem to be having a good time. Does she? Like,
1: that's what, and that's what, when I read her chapter, that's what, like, really brought up this analysis, the psychological analysis for me is that she's pretty damn unhappy. And she's only living for this one thing. And you can't just live for one thing. Like that's just not how we work as people. You have to have interpersonal connections. You have to have something more. And the times when we see her experience the most happiness is in these moments of almost erotic moments where with her cheeks flushed by the wash of heat as if by lovers' kisses. And that's again drawing she like has the flame. Like she has to um, she has to gain joy out of the thing that's brought her pain. We learn that a lot of the people who were slaves to the temple of the Lord of Light have those facial flame tattoos. I have this headcanon. I'm like, what if underneath the glamour, she has that, right? So that would make it especially interesting, like the the flames washing her cheeks, like a lover. Like the only, like a lover, like she experiences, it's really erotic. Her connection to the warmth from the fire is quite erotic. So I think that the fa- she's only able to get pleasure through this thing that's her only mission in life.
0: So those, so we've laid out the criteria and and how Melisandre meets them, and how she's she's struggling to keep at bay these these kind of sensations, these repressed sensations, these sublimated fears that she doesn't want to want to deal with. How would you evaluate how she's doing? How do how do you think uh, her her defense mechanisms are working? And what you know, if if she wanted to get better, whatever that means, you know, what should she do?
1: She's the last person who will want to because she thinks that she's doing amazing. The issue is that if you leave this stuff unresolved, it's going to pop up. So like avoidance, Melisandre's defenses are protective and they're protecting her very well. However, they're ultimately maladaptive because they're all about avoidance. And avoidance rather than approach is only going to make symptoms worse. So I would say that she has she's doing great in the apparent competence Perspective and she's not like having nightmares and flashbacks to the extent of others who like where PTSD is interfering more with their day-to-day life To me, it's like it's so and I think this is part of her being a few hundred years old This is all just so ingrained in her if she went to therapy I think what I would encourage in terms of like for her to heal is to really work with somebody who Who is not who's gonna see through her bullshit who is going to not just dismiss I think like someone like a Melisandre Who's like with like really big on the apparent competence has to work with somebody who's willing to call it out. Melisandre most likely would then just be like, "Bye, I'm not coming back." So I would love to see her be able to be like happier. I don't know if it's possible in this universe, um, but that is what fanfiction is for.
0: And Melisandre with those those tantalizing uh, gaps in her backstory leaves it leaves it well open for that thank you so much for coming on Rohan I had a really great time I was looking forward to this episode so much and tell the tell the folks listening where they can find your work
1: I I mean for Twitter I I said I'm mostly like a cinephile I don't consider myself like an a swath asswipe tweeter but my I always love
0: your movie tweets whenever whenever I see when your tweets go past I'm always like I someone mentioned Godard oh yep, I know who it was
1: that's me I I used to in high school skip school to go to film forum my Twitter is Cyril Woodcock which is Everyone thinks it's a sex joke. It's named after the Banff character from Phantom Thread. And then I also will promote my fanfiction account on the fanfic website, which is called An Archive of Our Own. My username is Surprise, Terrible, and Red.
0: And as always, folks, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F where people can get access to our bonus episodes and early access to our regular episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at cast, ASOIaf or shoot us an email at a cast, ASOIaf at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week.